Before we launch into the episode itself, a few words of explanation are in order. This is the second of two shows talking about Call of Cthulhu's 7th edition and how it evolved. You know, I feel still like I've got this cone-shaped body being transplanted into Western Australia, because this was a while ago that we recorded Yeah, this, this was about it? a year ago when we recorded these. So it was recorded on our old equipment. Hey, the Yeti! Woohoo! But this means you may notice a bit of a difference in sound quality between this and our more recent episodes. One thing we've noticed after having released the first part of this is we do seem to have brought in a lot of new listeners with these episodes. Hello, everyone. Hello. Yes, welcome. Uh, We should probably explain a little bit about what the podcast is about. Uh, The Good Friends of Jackson Elias is a podcast largely about the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. We have covered 7th edition in a number of episodes before, dating all the way back to the early days of the show. And we'll link some episodes that might be of particular interest to 7th edition uh, in the show notes. And also on the website, you can click on the podcast link to take you to the whole list of back episodes. And our regular listeners will know that we have a Patreon account. Given this was a year ago, we hadn't got the facility uh, set in place then, so we haven't got any shout-outs for the moment. But normal service will be resumed in a couple of weeks. And without further ado... Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And it's me again, Mike Mason. Still handcuffed to the same chair. Let me out. <laughs> As you may remember from last episode, we're talking to Mike and Paul about the origins of Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. Uh, Last time we went through some of the genesis of the project, some of the early ideas, what the design goals were, pitching it to Chaosium and so on. Now we're going to have a bit more of a discussion this episode about the design process itself and how the whole thing came to fruition. What happened after the light went green on the project? But first, it's time for the Lovecraft Word of the Week. And now, it's the Lovecraftian Word of the Week. And this week's word is... Squamous. Lovely word. Yeah, there's something about the way that word feels in your mouth that's just wrong. Quite mellifluous. I think we all pronounce it differently, because I have to say squamous. Covered with or characterised by scales. A squamous... Oh, damn it, you got me doing it now. Yes! A squamous (laughs) black hide. Anatomy, relating to, consisting of, or denoting a layer of epithelium that consists of a very thin, flattened cells... Squamous cell carcinoma. And also from anatomy, denoting the flat portion of the temporal bone which forms part of the side of the skull. And in our quick bit of research before the episode, we could only actually find one example of Lovecraft using this, which is a bit surprising because it's one of these words that I inextricably associate with Lovecraft. But, uh, yeah, there's an example from the Dunwich Horror. Above the waist, it was semi-anthropomorphic, though its chest, where the dog's rending paws still rested watchfully, had the leathery, reticulated hide of a crocodile or alligator, 
The back was piebald with yellow and black, and dimly suggested the squamous covering of certain snakes. As we left it in the end of part one, um, the project of being greenlit by Chaosium, very much work was starting to get underway. So, how did the development process actually start? I think it was a lot of time of me bashing away on rules and various reiterations of rules and sending them to you, Mike, and you kind of looking at them <laughs> and then waiting for me to send you the next version before you did anything with them until we'd kind of got a version that we were happy with. And that was... I, I couldn't find on the computer where those were, but that was quite a long time. That was... I, actually, no, I can remember there was Continuum and I must have picked up the gold book at Continuum. That was 2008. That was 2008. And I went away on holiday with the family down to Cornwall and stayed in a yurt and it rained almost constantly. And when I wasn't playing games with the kids, I was reading the gold book and going through it and looking at rules that could be incorporated into the, into the game. I guess the process was that, like I say, I'd, I'd send Mike past the rules, he'd look over them, and then me, we'd meet up sometimes, wouldn't we? Particularly yeah, me, I, you and Kiri. And... Yeah, I think in dispersion, you'd send rules, I'd sort of read them, and we would have a pretty regular conversation on the telephone. Yeah, and, at and least which once a week. Which consisted of me going, what's this? <laughs> <laughs> How does this work? Yeah. Or, or like that. And... Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, and you know, you know, having a conversation that kind of spiralled out from whatever you'd sent, that might have actually either would reinforce a particular thing you sent or question it effectively. I think yeah. it was kind of like it was yeah, like yeah. kind of like yeah, that seemed okay. This one, not so sure, or what you know, and yeah. it would go back and forwards. I think till yeah, yeah, you know, and that process, as you say, went on for quite some time. Oh yeah, months uh, or, or years, in fact. That. Process, you know, I'd, I'd chat to you on the, for an hour or more on the phone, and then I'd, that would kind of set my mind rolling. And I found that it was one of those things that once I'd started thinking about something, I'd just, you know, I'd be thinking about it while I was driving, you know, to work, or to, or just sort of wake up and be thinking about it, or go to sleep thinking about it, be play testing and sort of thinking over changes to rules. So it's kind of a, a fairly I don't know, not an obsession, but a, a kind of preoccupation, I suppose. At that point, we weren't really telling anyone that we were working on them either. No, no. I remember we, for no. a long time it was a secret. Yeah, no, we Maybe just thought it would... told you guys. Yeah, but... no, no, you told us at Continuum that uh, Chaosium had picked it up. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, looking back, I kind of, I, I think maybe unconsciously, but knew there needed to be a working space that would allow space to work in that would be unimpeded by additional comment, criticism and trial because it needed to be something that me and Paul felt worked to start with. I mean, that said, I mean, you were still playtesting this stuff uh, on an ongoing basis. When you started playtesting some of these rules, as you mentioned before, uh, you actually made the pitch to Chaosium. And, you know, I, I remember even from that stage onwards around then taking part in fairly, you know, a, a regular playtest. Yeah, you and Robin. I mean, yeah. there was just me, you and Robin at my house playtesting yes. um, very early versions of it quite a bit, as I recall. Yeah. I remember coming over to your place and trying to run... Oh, the Moolah that Aaron Vanek wrote, which was oh, a, a God, scenario yes. sort of based around uh, maybe Deep Ones and so on. 
but it was quite hard play testing the rules at that stage with a pre-written scenario so we, we just kind of um, left that to one side you know good as it was we kind of left that to one side and and just tried to kind of uh, a more kind of free-flowing um, scenario just to sort of see where the rules would take us I guess it was sometime later when we actually started play testing at the club that's where I got yes. involved yeah because I think that's what yeah because I think what I was trying to corral you into was having not just oh here's the combat rules but actually saying, well, here's the base rules yeah. to allow a scenario to be played in, you know, in full. I think you, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> because these playtests, when you were doing them, they weren't generally scenarios. I mean, this is probably something that's worth elaborating on because, you know, if anyone out there is designing games, this for me was an interesting process to be involved in. The fact that instead of coming along and running a traditional scenario or something like that, you'd come along, you know, with, uh, sit down with me and Robin and sort of, right, you know, here's a general situation, here are the rules I want to test, let's set up something that is going to bring these rules into effect. And we sit there and we do a bit of role-playing. It wasn't completely mechanical. We'd get into the characters, we'd play that a bit, but we'd always have one eye on, oh, you know, we're going to be testing a chase mechanic here, we're going to be testing, you know, a combat mechanic. And we'd, we'd angle things so that it would get into a situation where we'd use those mechanics, and then we'd, we'd thrash them out. It greatly helped that I had you and Robin, who are both great at improvising um, story. I mean, one example of the early push mechanic I can remember was your, you chose, Scott, to have a character that was already versed in the Cthulhu mythos to some degree. It was kind of an old professor who'd, who'd yeah. researched this stuff. And uh, you went into an old building and... There was some hint that, that something had gone on there, and you said, can I use the Cthulhu Mythos skill that I've already got to, to try and figure something out about this? And you you know, you know rolled and failed, and then we pushed the roll. You said, can I push it? And I was like, I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, I right, guess because, so. because I seem to remember there was some artefact there or something carved in the floor. Yeah. And so basically I tried to learn more about it. My pushed roll was by trying to recreate the ritual. Yes, and then, of course, you failed it again. The consequence was these kind of uh, mutants or spider things, you know, came out of the chimney and attacked you or something yes. like that because you had kind of in, inadvertently broken through the veil using your Cthulhu Mythos skill. So that that was a kind of an early formation of, of, of that aspect of the rules. So that was partly how they were kind of forged. We didn't have a time frame for getting it done either. No. I always kind of felt you were coordinating... The, the more the kind of overall structure of the kind of schedule of... No, no schedule's not the right word, but I was sending it to you. And at, at a <laughs> yes. point where it was kind of formed enough, you sort of said, right, let's go with this. Yeah, I think... I, yeah, I, I saw it as getting to a point where, where a certain thing seemed to be working okay and saying, stop worrying about that bit now. Leave that. That, that seems to be okay. Mm. What about chases, or, or you know, what what's what's next on your list? Yeah, and because I, I was conscious that any one of these areas, you could just keep spending time on and refining, refining, and trying yeah. it and trying it. So and I would have done, and, and yeah, I think you would have done. Yeah. So my 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 sense was to put kind of put the brakes on the bits where you were kind of getting it right, and then allow you to go and you know. I think if if we work well, carry on. If we work well at all, it's because I'm a tinkerer and you're a completer finisher. You've <laughs> you, 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 you're the one kind of saying, right, it needs to be done by such and such time. You know, towards the end, it was like, okay, we've got to have a finished version of it done by this day, you know, and, you know, it was virtually done, but you, you were the one sort of giving it a structure in that way, whereas I would just kind of tinker with it, 
give it to you. You would tinker. You would keep yeah. tinkering. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What, what, what is it? Is it Picasso who had that wonderful line about uh, no work of art is ever finished, just abandoned? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you know while Paul was tinkering, I uh, you know I was either going over what Paul had already done, or in the meantime I was just going back through as far as I could old Call of Cthulhu scenarios and stuff, supplements and stuff, and just reminding and rereading stuff and just sort of getting, you know, getting back the flavour. Because, I mean, I remember yeah. Paul saying, you, you you kept going back and reading the very first edition, you know, the, you know Sandy's core kind of stuff. Yeah, that and was keep, my Bible, really. Keeping that as a Bible and, and kind of ethos to the whole, to both of our approaches. Yeah. So I think, you know, keep going back to the uh, to what had been there before was really important, yeah. Yeah, that, that second edition, um, was it a Games Workshop edition? The one with the white uh, cover with the third, green? Uh, third, uh, yeah. third edition? No, the, the, uh, second the, the, the edition, third edition yeah, was yeah. the hardcover one. The, the second, second edition was the box set. Yeah, the one that set. came in the box yeah. set. That was the one that I bought originally, and that was the one that I ran. And to be honest, that was the one that I was still running. I'd bought version 5.5 with the, you know, the lovely blue illustration on the cover, the soft cover one. And when we started working on the rules that was the first time i really sat down and read that cover to cover <laughs> i remember when you read it yeah you would ring me up and go did you know there's this rule here yeah and go no i've never read that rule or you say where you tell me find the rule for such and such that you know everyone uses in the game yeah and you go like uh, i've just thought i can't find it because it's not there <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so all these rules that you assume are in the game or you assume um are not in the game it just it really just brought to mind that how much how much once you start playing a game when the new edition comes out uh, sometimes you don't always take that on board. Well, th know. there is this sort of oral culture that's built up amongst Call of Cthulhu players over the years, whereby these you know house rules or fixes or whatever these assumed rules that you're talking about are transmitted. But I, and I've seen this as an argument for why you know, a lot of the changes in Call of Cthulhu Seventh weren't necessary because you know everyone knows this stuff. But yeah, I've always thought there have got to be people out there who sit down with that book as their first introduction to Call of Cthulhu, read it, and that's how they learn the book. Uh, absolutely, and that was foremost in my mind that that I always knew that whatever we put out to your experienced Call of Cthulhu player, they would pick and choose what they liked. You know, and that could be the whole thing. It could just be doing what they've always been doing, which is the first edition of the book, because that's what they do as experienced role players. Yeah. But to my mind, it could be a person new to Call of Cthulhu. It could be a person new to role playing. Mm. So it was really important to me that the book should read logically, make sense, have advice, have examples, and be um, a consistent, comprehensive rule book. I felt that was fundamental, and that was my that, problem with other editions. That, that was one of the like first that. things you did was you came down to see me one Saturday, and I remember sitting out on the deck in in the sunshine and going through the whole book and making notes about the whole structure of the whole book. Yeah, you yeah. remember that? Yeah, I do now. Now you yeah. yeah. went on for hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. but I also remember yeah when when I, when I finally got involved as as editor, one of the things that. Yeah, I kept going on at you about was that you know, Call of Cthulhu is unusual in this day and age in that it is one of these games that is likely to be someone's first role playing game. Yeah. And so I, I remember you know, on my first pass through it, about half the notes that I made were just, you know, example of play here, example of play here. Yeah, and I think that's in part why the book has turned out to be the size it is because of the number of examples. Yeah, there's yeah. far more examples in it now than there's ever been. But I think that's a good thing for it because, you know, I, I even now, you know, um, 
I you know I get emails from players. I see things on forums of players who um, uh, are looking at other editions and, and asking questions. How does this rule work? Well, I, and personally, as someone who does still occasionally learn new systems, you know, one thing that I find helps me when I'm reading through a game book more than anything else, I find reading through the rules themselves are fairly dry. I hit the examples of play, and that's when it clicks. That's when everything falls into play. That's when I understand how it works. We've talked a bit in the previous episode about how you tried to stay true to the spirit of, of Call of Cthulhu, how you tried to make sure that it was the, the same game at its heart and, and reined in some of the, the wackier changes, as you put it. But with that in mind, what would you say are the biggest changes in this new edition? I guess the, the, the major change is perhaps the pushed skill rolls, because skill rolls are a kind of fundamental part of the game, and being able to push those skill rolls is, is a fundamental, well, is, is, a, is a new aspect. Spending luck, in the end, we made it optional. I hesitate to say this is a change, but it is. It technically is a change. But I think the way that combat runs is, 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 has been changed. I don't believe it's that radically different. I find combat in 7th edition much more satisfying because one of my bugbears with you know, older versions of Call of Cthulhu, and I've seen this in many other games, was that whole swing-miss, 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 which made up 90% of, of the fight. And you know, as soon as you throw a dodge in there as well, then you spend most of the time you know, rolling dice, quite often just mechanically describing what's going on. And you know, in the end, that is actually pretty dull. Yeah, I mean, the way I was describing it to someone the other day was that somebody who already played Call of Cthulhu um, was that um, effectively you're making pretty much the same dice rolls you, you made in playing 6th edition Call of Cthulhu in combat. You're interpreting the results of those dice rolls slightly differently now or in a changed yeah. way because effectively in the old system, you know, you would, you know, you'd roll to hit and maybe miss and then you'd roll to dodge and maybe make it or bail it or whatever. Um, uh, now we're just both rolling those dice at the same time rather than you waiting for me to roll and then you going and... But, you know. but also, more importantly, something interesting is more likely to happen when those dice... Oh, yeah, and that, but that's that's the second part to it. So I guess, in, as I was describing it, is it, as a process, you're doing exactly the same thing as you did in old, the old game. You're doing exactly the same thing. However, you're just interpreting the results slightly differently. Rather than just a straight fail and miss you now have some degrees of success and comparing those against each other um, so um, which means it's more likely for there to be a result first time but another change you made as well which I've seen a few people comment on is you know something that was quite alien to them was the idea of fighting back in combat it, it came to me the other evening Emily's been going my daughter's been going to a martial arts class and her instructor was saying how you know if somebody attacked him he could throw blows so fast he'd get three blows in before those landed. And whether that's true or not, I don't know. But my perception is that when the attack is launched, the opponent doesn't just dodge out of the way. They can dodge and get a blow in of their own. You know, it's, it's an active two-way process. That seems more dynamic and more exciting to me. And more real. Well, I, I hope so. I, I, I think when you are being attacked, you may consciously decide to evade the attack and therefore all you're doing technically is dodging. However, in most fist fights, you're not doing that. You may be weaving after the way of a punch, but you are looking to engage the punch as well. Yes. And, um, and, I, and again, it just fits with the concept of trying to make combat more streamlined, um, slightly speeded up, 
and more effective in terms of that something happens pretty much on every role. So it, it plays into that, the fact that, you know, it's, it's, it's a two-way tussle and that one role doesn't necessarily mean one punch. That, actually, I think that's the fundamental that's, that's, thing. Yes. There's something we buy into with role-playing games, I guess, from the days of, you know, first edition D&D, is this idea of combat rounds. And I almost tried to get rid of that with that what we talked about last episode with the with just making it a skill roll. Okay, you're a you're a human and you're fighting a deep one. It's one skill roll to see how the combat turns out and ditching combat rounds altogether. But that seemed too far to go. Yeah. But that concept of combat rounds what the hell is that? Yeah, I mean, not only doesn't it reflect reality, but if you're looking at it trying to um, model horror movies, action movies, or whatever, fight scenes there don't happen in nice, neat exchanges or whatever. They're, you know, jockeying for position. They're people, you know, trying risky things. They're doing, you know, it's people doing things that look interesting on the screen or on the page. And this idea of my go, your go... A skilled fighter is, you know, if they're good and they're attacking you, they're going to get a whole load of blows in compared to your one. Or certainly they're going to get a number of effective blows in against your kind of, you know, fumbling, you know, weak blows. Which is re represented by the the um, value of your skill. So if you're yeah. skilled 90%, you're probably more likely going to hit me than with my 30%. Yeah. And, with I, and I can narrate that as... Um, Okay, I'm charging up, throwing blows and kneeing him in the groin and trying to you know, throw him to the floor. That's all one skill roll, and it comes out, and if I've got high skill, it's probably going to come out as a high amount of damage. In terms of it being a game and being a consistent use across the board for all the players, so just a parity and fairness, uh, you know, the, the concept that in a combat round, everyone gets to initiate one thing, yeah. which could be an attack, it could be running away, it could be doing something else. And then you have a parity, but you don't have to get bogged down in the minutiae of, well, my action takes place in 4.5 seconds and you're, you yeah. know, and, and which starts to starts to add a level of complication that isn't really necessary, I guess. Yes. The rules no longer fade into the background. <laughs> and the idea of the fighting, the fighting back was that, you know, what are you trying to do in the fight? Are you, you know, the deep ones attacking you, are you trying to, to you know, kill it or take it captive or gut it and get upstairs back to your room to get the things that you hid there? Or are you trying to get away? And if it's the first one, then, you know, you're going to be fighting back against it. You're going to be trying to overcome it. If it's the second one, you're probably dodging and trying to escape. So there was that, you know, trying to, to build that motivation into what you choose to do. But you touched on something else there as well. Uh, which is taking a lot of these things like uh, grapple and some of the spot rules and so on and simplifying them into you know what you now call combat maneuvers I think fundamentally what I want when I'm when I'm running the game I want to look at somebody and say what are you doing the, the deep ones jumped out at you and it's thrusting its spear at you what are you doing and I don't want them to look at their sheet and say oh I'm fighting back or I'm yeah. gonna dodge I want them to sort of say okay I'm I, I, I'm going to throw myself behind the table or I'm going to try and charge forward and push the deep one out the window. or And, and I'll say, okay, well, that one sounds like a combat manoeuvre. Or I'll say, that sounds like dodge. Because it builds story then. Absolutely. And, and obviously combining what used to be fist, punch, Oh, kick, God, I've forgotten about that. Headbutt <laughs> yes. into basically a fighting skill, which in this case is fighting brawl, amalgamates those actions so it allows you to you know to narrate anything happened i remember playing in games where a player has gone well i'm i'm uh, headbutting the shoggoth 
and I say, well, what, you know, why, why are you doing that? Um, well, because I've got I've got seventy percent in headbutt, and I've only got twenty percent in fist. So, so every round I'm headbutting the shog off, and it, and it it just makes a bit of a joke of the situation, which could, yeah. it could be quite dramatic and tense and 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 quite a powerful scene, you know, this quite engaging combat scene, but it's. The, the the reality is broken down by this guy headbutting a shock off every round. Headbutting yes. the shock off. That's his highest does, skill. This does sound like a euphemism, headbutting the shock off. <laughs> I don't know what for, but. It didn't work out very well for poor Dr. Pretorius, did it? Did no, it? no. I can't, I can't get my head around the concept of headbutting a shock off on multiple rounds. It lasted yeah, sure. oh, yeah. well, round. It didn't last it. very long, but <laughs> it, it was but, a small shock. Yeah, more of more of a chocolate. We'll call him. We'll call him Squarmy. Players <laughs> being forced into basically picking what is their highest combat yeah. value. And Round two, I think. Okay, okay you're headbutting hit the shot off from the inside. They're <laughs> <laughs> trying to get out now. Um, I'd kind of, for that moment, I'd forgotten about the whole thing about kick and a headbutt and so on. But yeah, so you're stuck in a lift with somebody, and you know it's a really constricted space, and the player says, "Oh, I'm going to headbutt them," and you say, "Okay, well, you've got ten percent in that," and they're going to be automatically, like, "Oh, well, no, I won't do that," even though that's narratively, that's that's you know that's what, what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, so having those different skills at different ratings, I just didn't really buy that. I mean, what about your elbow? What about your knee? What about, you know, all those other parts of your body you're going to actually use in yeah. a fight? Yeah, body slam. Yeah, yeah, using the wall. I mean, in um, Reanimator that we just watched, uh, the several people and animals get killed by being hurled at a wall, I noticed. Yes. You can just use the investigator's damage rating, their unarmed damage, against them. You know, when you okay, well, I I push his head against the wall. Okay, well, that's just your physical damage. You don't need to know what that wall damage a wall does. I don't need a chart for that. One of the comments I've kind of picked up about from certain areas of fan base is there's a feeling or a perception that the combat rules are perhaps more pulpy than um, than they used to be. I completely disagree with that. I think they're more realistic than they used to be. You know, they can be played pulpily, but they're not pulpy in, in their intent and, and really the um, the way that they play out unless you in, unless you characterise them in that way. Um, but I find them actually being much more gritty and realistic. Yeah, I agree. That's my experience of, of running and playing it. And the other two things that people point to as, as making the game more pulpy are, you know, the luck spend mechanic and pushed rolls. And I've found, again, actually, those tend to have the opposite effect. Like the, the luck spend mechanic is an odd one because, you know, if anything, it's a trap. You've got that temptation there to do it. And certainly, I, I don't know whether other keepers do this, but, you know, what I, I will generally do, particularly for one shots as I've used it, is I'll make sure that there's some important stuff that happens in the end that is contingent on luck rolls. Normally after I've burnt a whole load of it. Precisely, but you know, that's the trap aspect of it. Yes, you've had your short-term success, but by the end, time the end comes around, you're fucked. Yeah, no, I, see, I just see it as a straight mirror of the sanity system. It, it degrades the more you, you, know, the, the more you um, use that ton of resource. It, it degrades, but... Um, and, and, and I can accept that you know, the use of luck can be seen as more pulpy, and you know, I think that's one of the reasons it became, it became an optional rule. But I don't think necessarily that's a bad thing or a good thing in that sense. I think it's, 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 it can be used as you will. Yeah, I think maybe 
the fact that you can spend the luck, you can only spend it, it's a bit like money. You can only spend it once. Once it's gone, it's gone. You can recoup it on, at the start of following sessions, you can recoup a small amount. But, but yeah, not very much. But the and point is, if, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna be eaten by a shoggoth or something and you can spend some luck to, to avoid being eaten by a shoggoth, that's great. So you might have to spend 30 or 40 points on your dodge, uh, luck points to make your dodge roll, but there's another round. Yes. Spending the luck, it buys it for a moment. You have a lucky combat, break. You have yeah, a lucky break, literally. If you are actually up, up against the odds, it's you know it's, it yeah. gives you an edge occasionally, but you know, ultimately yeah. it's um, short-lived. Actually, this sort of reminded me as well. Uh, one of the other uh, changes which I remember uh, was the fact that the uh, the connections in the game that you've got. If I remember correctly, in the the original version of those, those were used for recovering luck when luck wasn't an optional uh, mechanic. Yeah, that was something that came in, and we had well, they were called connections. They're no longer called connections. Oh, yeah, you have back, a key connection. Yeah. yeah, now they're backstory elements. There was an iteration of the rules with connections, and you wrote down what your connection was. So maybe it was your um, your mother. I don't know. And every time when you in a session, if you could sort of bring that connection into the story you'd get a few points of luck back i can't remember exactly how yeah, much yeah I, I think it varied depending on the length of the session yeah it was either yeah it was one yeah. point for short sessions or three for long ones and that was kind of okay well, it, it's one of them rules that it works great on paper yeah and some people liked it and some people did like it but it, it one of them rules that also can also work very badly off paper yeah depending yeah. on well, it, How you're playing it. It did get a bit gratuitous at times. So, yeah, but you're taking the example there. Totally. You, you, you would certainly get players who every session it was, oh, have I mentioned my mother yet? Oh, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Uh, yeah. This makes me think of my mother, tick. <laughs> yeah. 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 It just, and, it, and it rapidly became quite silly. You know, it, the intent was great, uh, but um, it, it, in practice it didn't... It, it would break one of the rules, which would be it's got to, it's got to work consistently. Yeah. It's got to feel like Call of Cthulhu, and it didn't. For me, yeah. that, was, that was the difference. I played, uh, Matt not play tested uh, World War One scenario, and I was playing in it, and I, it didn't really sit well with me having to bring the connections in. I yeah. felt that it felt contrived, it didn't feel right. So that, you know, that's why that got dropped out. It didn't feel like a part of Call of Cthulhu. Then. No, I, me- I remember us talking about it when we both, yeah. we, we, we both got to the point of going like, this isn't working. Yeah. And I think, um, I think, uh, yeah, we had a conversation, and and it, and it, the the end of it being, why don't we just make a look a return like a, a skill return? And ultimately, looking back at my notes here, the first question was about what influences were, and I've got noted down that and I can't quite remember how these worked, but I've got keys from Shadow of Yesterday, Stroke oh, yes. Burning Wheel, and I wanted to have something about your character that as you went through play. There was a, a statement, a, a, a number of statements about your character that would be altered through play. So it might yeah. be, you know, when you uh, went temporarily insane, the keeper could take your sheet and rework that that connection in some way and kind of erode it. And it also had the other advantage in that it gave a reason for uh, players to create characters who actually felt more like real people. Back in the 80s, I played in countless Cthulhu games where characters were seen as disposable resources, and it's sort of, you know, don't get too attached to it. It's like a you know, goldfish you got at the fairground. It's going to be dead in a week. You know, just, sure. just give it a name uh, and, and run. 
I mean, I, I mean, over the years, I've seen many of these on the internet. In fact, I created one myself, was to actually um, help players build uh, a character, uh, you know, with a background and some sort of motivation. Um, you would find the short questionnaires. You know, who's your who's your family? Um, mm. What do you hate? What do you love? What do you, what what do you desire to do? What you know what what would happen if you could you know do X or Y? Um, and each of them were a prompt to basically think, well, what what's my character? And and you know, there's been countless of those. And again, they, they were all house rules. No, there was never any in the rule book, but it was a way of kind of codifying all that really good good help to a player in 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 a sense of building a you know a backstory. You know, what what who. Who's important to you? What's important to you? Yeah. What do you think? But it does something far more important than that, in my, or at least something that makes it far more appealing to most players, which is it gives a mechanical reason for doing that as well. Because if you had all those elements and you wrote them on the back of your sheet and they didn't actually do anything apart from tell you who your character was, I think a lot of people wouldn't bother with them. Well, some people do, but then they then don't come into the game. Yeah. That's right. So you do get a lot of people who spend a lot of time writing a backstory for Call of Cthulhu character that has no bearing on the game. It's never looked at again. The keeper may never even read it. And equally, there's a mechanical uh, incentive with them in terms of regaining sanity. You know, in terms of um, connecting with your the things that are meaningful for your character. So, if your significant person was your mother, you can describe how you go and stay with your mother, you know, on holiday or whatever, yeah. and you know, you make a role, and you might get some sanity back because it's kind of grounded you and you know, and it, sort it, your it, head it, out. It, it kind of codifies what was happening anyway. But again, there was no rule for it that people would lose a lot of sanity in the game in between scenarios or in a campaign. You know, the keeper would say, "Well, they've gone off to a hospital for a while, or they've gone off on holiday, or they've gone to the family, and they're having a recuperation, and oh, I get some sanity back," which was happening all the time. This just helps to kind of define that, I guess, and codify it, <coughs> and sometimes even give you an incentive for playing those bits out. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. And again, and each and each continues to build the character. Yeah, I mean, for example, you know, with the game that you and I were playing together recently, Mike, um, you know, one of the players, Alina, uh, there had a number of uh, scenes where she she basically used her backstory element scenes to try to establish a rapport with her alienated family, and those scenes ended up, you know, sort of building up a little pa- almost parallel storyline that ended up being quite poignant. That was oh yeah, and and, and actually, you know, fueled into the portrayal of Alina's character. Well, we've looked at a few things that made it in, that made the cut, but can you think of any examples of things that didn't make the cut? I mean, it's a, it's a big rule book, but surely there must have been stuff that got left out. I don't know if there were wholesale rules that didn't go in. I'm sure there were some uh, some little ones that didn't make it in. Uh, but the certainly the hit points had quite a revision. Yeah. Um, initially, it was going to be that you had your standard number of hit points... And you went down to zero and you were unconscious, but you weren't dead until you went down to a number equal to negative your hit point number. So if you kind had like 10 hit points... like AD&D, wasn't it? You had 10 hit points, but you could go down to minus 10 I think so. It's a fairly... Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not, not, not a particular innovation. In effect, people felt you had twice as many hit points, but you know, it just meant that you were you know, likely to be unconscious. <laughs> yeah, you'd be unconscious... And die ten rounds later, yes. whatever it might be. Um, yeah, that 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 didn't end. It just ended up being kind of not really necessary, did it? I think it was another thing that just felt a little more 
complicated because I can. Yeah. That was another thing that 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 helped was through the play testing. I would do character sheets. Well, in fact, Matt would make some great character sheets for us. Um, <laughs> Lots of graphic design moons ago. Yes. Yeah. So I'd send it to Matt, and Matt would make it into a nice character sheet, and we'd play test that. And I'd kind of made this um, uh, sort of uh, track for the hit points to sort of help with sorting out. Uh, healing and so on. Well, there, there was wasn't there one iteration where there were two hit points? There were hit points and wounds. Was it? There were major wounds. No, there, there was another one. Oh, there, there, was a, there was a, there was yeah. a character sheet that had these uh, like injury boxes and stuff. Yes. So and I was yeah. doing them, and I was and I was setting out some characters to play test with with my group. And I, as I was doing it, I go, these ain't staying in. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that to Paul yet, but these ain't staying in. Well, no, I, yeah. I remember at the same time, I was running some public playtests or third-party playtests yeah. without actually telling anyone that it was Call of Cthulhu. Yes, you were very bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I did get your permission first, but, but I, I remember going out to a few conventions and the like and, and running this and trying to explain those hit point rules and those wound rules to people who had played Call of Cthulhu before in some cases or you know, at least knew what hit points was and everyone got so fucking confused oh this is coming back to me now there were minor wounds major wounds mortal wounds and death that was it there were two boxes for each one and healing each one was progressively more difficult so it's fairly easy for first aid or whatever to heal minor wounds and minor wounds a day later they were just gone you were just back up to normal hit points i think it was wasn't until you got to major wounds that that you had a lasting wound so if you took lots, you could be reduced to zero with lots of little uh, punches, lots of ones and twos of damage, but the next day you'd be fine again. Basically, yes. you would have, you would have, you know, it wouldn't be impeding you. You'd be bruised and a bit battered looking, but you wouldn't be impeded by it because they were just a lot of little minor wounds. But every time you took significantly more damage than that in one go, you'd take a wound. Yeah. And those would be the things that would slow down your healing, take longer to recover from and so on. I'd sit at the computer and it would all make sense to me. But I could see in practice that it was taking a lot of explaining to Mike and I'd run it at the club and, you know, after several weeks, people still weren't getting it. Oh, God, yeah, that, that nearly broke me. Yeah. Try, 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 trying to run that as third-party playtests. I, uh, yeah. I, I took those character sheets I'd done and I, always, I was already thinking this isn't going to work. <laughs> and I gave them my gaming group and... Uh, and I didn't explain them. I just said, oh, we'll cover that if we get into a fight, yeah. which obviously I engineered that we did very quickly. <laughs> and um, and <laughs> the looks of all of them as I was going, well, that's a minor wound. You've got a, a critical wound or whatever it was. And, uh, and, fa- and, and even that, within about 30 seconds, even I was confused. I, just ignore that. Just rub that <laughs> out. Rub all that out. Ignore that. That's not, not worry about that now. We've, we've tested it. We've ran it. It doesn't work. It's that dangerous balance of trying to simulate what I perceived as reality with yes. game mechanics. Yes, yes. And ultimately, I think you've got to go for just trying to make it simple. Whether it's simple enough now, I don't know. But, uh, I mean, that is my anxiety, I guess, is that is it simple enough now? Just keep paring it back. But, like I said, we, we had all those wound categories in there and all those ways of healing. But I think what we've ended up with has the same ultimate feel in play as that complicated version. Yeah, it, has the, the, this, it achieves yeah. the same end that I wanted it to achieve. Yes, yeah. the, the minor damage doesn't matter anywhere near as much. Yeah. But when you get your leg chopped off, it's going to hurt. Yeah. 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 
As said, the book is very big and there's got to be some concessions made in certain areas. And one of them I understand was that the um, overall number of spells in the book had to be cut back quite a bit, surely, just making space, I guess. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we always knew the book was going to be bigger. And, and you know, and, and as we drew nearer to the end and we're working cl- more closely with, with Charlie and, and the guys at Curzium, um, we started to have an, you know, a kind of an idea of what the page count would be, which was bigger than the old edition, but obviously not tremendously bigger. Um, so um, there has to be give and take here and there. And so there was a number of sections which were kind of earmarked as potential to either be cut or would find new homes elsewhere. So um, we always knew that we were going to be working on um, the Investigator Handbook. So it was quite obvious that uh, character generation, which obviously should be in both books, that the rule book only needed to have the the core character generation stuff, the stuff that Keeper would use and could just use around the table or a player could use. But the player book, you know, it would be quite right that there should be some additional material, more advice, more some further optionalities, that kind of stuff, and more professions. So um, that that was a very simple one to you know to to make sure that that material was in the player book rather than the rule book to you know, keep the actual size of that chapter down. Um, things like spells. There was a lot of spells in the book, and a lot of them were. Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just thinking the listeners. If if the listeners are concerned that you know there aren't as many spells in there as as there used to be, you just need to be thankful that Mike was at the helm on that part because uh, I would have chopped a lot more of them out. Well, but I was constantly sort of saying, let's leave these spells out. Let's just have you know. You you'd have left you'd have left in like resurrection. Fist of Yogg-Sothoth. And, and Shriveling, probably. That, and, yeah. Or maybe, maybe called Cthulhu. Yeah. Maybe. That, and you'd have been happy with that, wouldn't yeah. you? Because you're so, like, oh, I'll just make him up. Yeah. And, and, a, and a, a, two or three artefacts and a bit of advice. Because looking back at that version of a Second Ed, there was about a page of artefacts. There was a few spells. There was the, the, the kind of core monsters. And that's what I would have paired it back to quite happily. Yeah, um, I think I, but I think I, you're quite right to have more in there is fine. <laughs> I, I think I was trying to find a middle line. Yeah, that I felt there was a lot of spells that had grown into the rulebook over the years, and many that had just been taken wholesale out of campaigns or scenarios mm. that were quite relevant to those places where they were originally in, but weren't very generic. They were they kind of did one thing in the scenario. They you know, cast this spell to do X. Yes. Um, which wouldn't necessarily apply to many games of Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. Um, so yeah. those spells seemed that, you know, we could take those out and make sure that the ones left in were more generic, that had more uses for players and for, you know, keepers in the game. And we, also there were about four spells. We, we started, I think you went through the spells initially. We had this thing of, of trying to give advice on how to uh, improvise and create new spells or adapt existing spells. And you went through and they were like, you said to me, there's four or five versions of create what are essentially create zombie, yeah. black binding uh, and so on. And so we used those ones as the instruction on how to create variants of spells just by incorporating the, the, the spells that were already in the uh, previous edition. And, you know, we kind of... That was the step one of cutting down some of the spells, just chopping out some of them that were very similar to each other. This is it. And also, um, I think uh, maybe the originally back some years, maybe the original intention had been, well, every year we put some new spells out in source books and adventures. Well, when we do a new edition, we just collate them in so it becomes the, the master volume. Mm, yeah. But obviously after 30 years, there's, there's far too many spells and not, and not even half of them were in the rulebook mm. anyway. And it struck me that actually, well, let's find a new home for those. 
And so, you know, one of one of the things that, you know, working on going forwards is, is actually a volume that does collate 30 years worth of spells into one volume as a, as a, a reference and a resource for, for the game. We, we did actually use the draft of that uh, for our really a roulette episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. some time back. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that really brought home, there were any number of roles that we ended up having to cut out uh, of the episode because we go there and it was one very specific utility spell for a scenario that we just couldn't work into something there. Yes, and, and 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 I don't think that's a place. Those kind of spells ha- need to have a place in the rule book. But uh, likewise, monsters. Had, there was the core monsters that have always been in there, and a few fav- and a few that have become favourites and almost core over the years. And then there's a lot of extra. And so you know, I wanted to make sure that the core was in there. A few of the favourites were in there, but anything extra. Well, you know, there's a great book called Melis Monstrum, which has all of them in already. That's already out there. Um, so it felt that, you know, we, we don't want to necessarily waste space repeating stuff that, you know, a lot of experienced players already have and new players don't really need at the start of the game. Yeah, and if you've got a copy of the 6th edition Malleus Monstorum, you can still use it very easily with 7th. I mean, the conversions take seconds. Well, this is it. I mean, obviously, we, we've not, we've talked about the process, but we haven't obviously said the magic words. It is, it is really, 7th edition is compatible with older, you know, material for Call of Cthulhu from, you know, year one. It it works the same. Um just with some minor modification where necessary. But we moved away from magic without addressing the, ele- the elephant in the room. Oh, God. The elephant in the room? Well, all right. Do you mean the, the, the fish in the room? <laughs> yes. The that was, I think, I think possibly on that first afternoon that I mentioned where we sat down and went through the whole book. Yes, you that did. Was, that was the key spell I said to you, why the hell is this in there? And we both agreed, you know, that is the first thing that needs to go. Yes. So I, I'm sure we don't yes. need to explain this to the listeners. Or maybe but, you do. There may be somebody new listening. But we are, of course, talking about the core, the essential, the uh, the absolutely definitive Call of Cthulhu spell, <laughs> Attract Fish. Well, what, what more needs to be said? But um, it's, <laughs> Attract Fish is one of those, one of those spells that... I think it, that the intention behind the spell is very core of Lovecraftian because it's based out of the um, shadow of Rinsmouth in that you know it's you, you know the, the the fishermen in league with the deep ones are given the spell to attract more fish and so it's very Lovecraftian. Unfortunately, the application isn't very uh, useful. Yeah, it's color. It, it's very much color, and it, it's very much scenario specific again. Um, if you have a scenario set by the sea, it might be a useful spell. But yes, Matt. <laughs> so everyone turns and looks at me. So it was taken out uh, of the rule book, um, and uh, in my head, it was like, well, it will probably find a home in the collected spell book at some point down the road, you know. And, and really, no one's going to miss it in the meantime. Um, but of course, I had a, a new book come in of scenarios which were written by three gentlemen not far away from me at this moment in time. And I'm reading through, and one of them, whose name is Matt Sanderson, um, I was reading through the scenario, and <laughs> suddenly there appears to be a character who has an attract fish spell. So within <laughs> within weeks of me cutting the spell, I found it back in the game. <laughs> Honestly, it was a, it was an innocent mistake. I thought it was still in there from what I'd but seen. But in the context of Matt's scenario, it made perfect sense because he actually wrote it into the character and why that character would need that spell and yeah. uh, it was kind of I can't argue with the logic so I ended up putting the trackfish back in that scenario 
Yeah, it's not in the core book. And that's but... where it belongs. It's great having it in a scenario, I think. That's, yeah. that's... Absolutely, absolutely. But, but my favourite part of that whole process was, I can't remember the episode number, but it's, it's the, fact that, but the fact that Paul didn't realise this had happened. And I got to break the news to him as we were recording the podcast. So, I, yeah, I, I can't remember. It's one of the very early episodes, but, yes, Paul turns the air blue at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> Sheer disbelief, as I recall. Yeah. And flashbacks to the shed. (laughs) Innocent mistake. Well, there were a couple of other, you know, major things that ended up being cut out. One of them is the haunting. The classic scenario, uh, which is a great beginner scenario. Is it a great beginner's Call of Cthulhu scenario? Is it particularly Call of Cthulhu? No, it's a great scenario. Let's not debate that. It's it's a great scenario. I'd, I'd... gone through it and put additional notes in it and advice on sort of how to use the seventh head rules so we'd kind of that was the one we'd really kind of revised the most and it was going to be in there and, and we wanted it to be in there all along oh, i think i was i was pretty adamant that it should be yeah, in yeah no i, you, wanted, we, yeah, we, yeah, I, I think so. I, th- I think i think i was the one who ended up suggesting cutting it out <laughs> <laughs> and um and obviously it came down to page count and i was looking at things and and obviously you know scott said the various suggestions had come in and um, it struck me that actually, um, well, the quick start rules really could do with a scenario in there. Yes. <laughs> and wouldn't it make far more sense to have the haunting, especially because Paul's put all this extra guidance in of how you use the rules with it, um, that it would <laughs> you know, fit really well in the quick start and it, be I, really yeah, appropriate. It, it actually occurs to me that there were two scenarios we put all that additional guidance in and neither of them went into the core rule book. <laughs> the other one was Blackwater Creek. Yeah. Which has got loads of advice for beginning keepers, um, but we ended up taking it out because it was too similar in setting to uh, amidst the ancient trees. Yes, that's right. But ultimately, I think it's it's worked out well because that is a great place for it. anybody picking up the quick start rules and yeah. having the haunting combined with it. That's perfect. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, that went was the story. Now, I know, Mike, you were particularly keen on having the story in there from the outset. Yeah, I was pretty um, adamant with that. I, I felt that it, it, there should, it should have the Call of Cthulhu story in. It was one of those things, it just felt that it should be in there to me. Okay, um, yeah, again, I think this is something that I suggested taking out on the grounds that it's a different world now you know back when call of cthulhu was first published lovecraft was a in copyright and b you could only really you know get books and quite often expensive books that had his stories in now you know you can put call of the you know, the call of cthulhu into google and be reading it within seconds free of charge yes uh, no uh, 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 and uh, it's a very compelling argument and also what lesson when it came to the crunch of me adding up pages and going right mm, what lessened the the decision for me was the investigator handbook. The fact I'd kind of started that with the intention of putting the Dunwich Horrors in there, which in in reality is is probably a more is probably more like to a Call of Cthulhu scenario than the Call of Cthulhu mm. is. Yeah. Um, so that's why I felt it would be good in the players book. That was there, and uh, and the fact that you know the Call of Cthulhu wasn't lost that we would you know we would still make it available on our website and potentially put it into the Quick Start rules as well. That'd be a great iteration of the Quick Start rules with those the pared down rules, the the haunting, and the uh, and the Call of Cthulhu story. That would be a great product. The Call of Cthulhu rule book was going to be a book for everybody with all the rules up until the middle, and then we were going to present the Call of Cthulhu story as a sort of a divider and then following that it was all reference for the keeper so the spells monsters and it was all really keeper only stuff after that yeah, section wasn't yeah, it yeah. yeah that was the intention 
But in terms of when it came to actually start putting it together in a final kind of format, it, it quickly became apparent that that wasn't going to work. Well, particularly um, when we had the Investigator Handbook. Yeah, and also have the Investigator Handbook, which would address you know character generation and things like that. It didn't make any sense to you know hive the the keeper uh, the rule book into 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 two things, which it, it wasn't. It was clearly one thing, which you know a keeper could use, a player could pick up as well. To be frank. Now we've discussed when the pro- when the project started, say back in two thousand eight. But how long did the individual parts of the development process take? Like, for instance, how long did the writing take, art, etc., playtesting? Well, I guess if I deal with the, the early bits, then you, you yeah, because kind of... obviously we, we've kind of talked about the development process, but only of the kind of the first quarter, I guess, or the first bit. You know, in twenty eleven, Matt, you put together a kind of a, a like a quick start version of the rules that we'd got at that point. Oh, yes. Yes, I did. Um, yeah. Gathered the, the various Word documents together and put it together in one place. Yeah. That never actually saw the light of day, but you, you kind of put it together there. The following year, for 2012, we had a final draft, and you put it together, Matt, and laid it out, and we did a very like limited run just for us. We did about four or five copies, mm-hmm. maybe oh, half a yes. dozen copies, just for sort of contributors, so we'd actually got a book that we could hold. I think Still you just got ran it. it through Lulu, did you? Is yes. it Lulu? Yeah, it's a um, hardcover. Yeah, as uh, a small format hardcover book. It was just, I guess, it was just the the kind of core rules. Wasn't oh it? yeah, it didn't have monsters in no. and all that kind of stuff and spells and. Yeah, it might have had one or two. Monsters, it might have had a. But... So like, it would have had. It, it was almost like a pre-version of the playtest rules because it had stripped-down elements yeah. that were, you know, cut down from the main book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was kind of it was pretty much done at that point. I mean, not not finished, but it was almost in a yeah. Because I mean, obviously, version. you know, we had the kind of the the development of the rules, and then what followed, and we haven't really talked about, but it's pretty dull. We basically rewrote it up. We, we would write bits each. Send it back to one back and forth, and yeah. you know, and and we'd do that through the entire book um, till till we had a you know until a book was done. Yeah, and we'd often be pulling in slightly different directions with angles who wanted the things. So you'd, you'd you know I'd write something, you'd change it a bit, I'd get it back, I'd change it a bit, you'd get it back, and it'd be kind of a bit of a kind of throwing the ball back and forth. Yeah, we kind of keep honing it basically yeah. until, until it was kind of you know, um, right, I guess. And you know that that was a a long process. There was a lot of word documents with comments and, yeah. and so on tracking. In 2012, I went to Gen Con and met up with Charlie. And the following year, that was the year leading up to the Kickstarter. It went out to general playtesting at that point. Well, I think at that it was at that point where there were two things happened. Um, just before the the major playtesting, we um, with Charlie we gathered a group of kind of old Call of Cthulhu hands together. Yeah. Um, and uh, guys who have been writing for the game for some years and, and have written, you know, adventures and scenarios things. Uh, and basically we, we sent the rules out to those guys and we had a little forum uh, to allow those guys to just kind of digest it and throw back their comments, really, and um, give us feedback and things they like, things they didn't like, that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, that was kind of the prelude to generating generating a, a, a more open play test. So that was really good, and that, you know the feedback from those guys was always useful. But then at that point, I took on the playtest, so I basically put a call out for uh, an open playtest around the world. We kind of reformatted the 
the manuscript into a playtest yeah, manuscript. Could, yeah. And then I started basically doing the admin on the playtesters. So, you know, you know, well, hundreds of uh, players around the world and uh, from all all manner of uh, places. Yeah, we had this was what early twenty thirteen or so. Oh, no, I'd say it was 2012. Yeah, because there was two parts to the playtest. Yeah. There was the initial phase one, and then you know there would be the feedback, and then I knew that obviously there would be changes because playtest always makes changes. all that feedback was a massive. Job. And the amount hundreds, yeah. hundreds of feed, you know individual feedbacks coming in. And uh, me and Paul Clay are you know, taking bits some of it. Some of which and... were really in-depth and really well considered. Some of which were kind of picking out uh, small details of, of, of factual things about, you know, references we'd made or whatever. All sorts of feedback. Uh, that was really oh, all useful. Yeah, yeah, really wide, but all really, really useful. And obviously some people saying, this rule X, I, I don't like that. that. That's dreadful. Other people saying, this rule X, that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it, and it came down to where, where there were some, con- con- well, contentious issues in terms of rules. It, it came down that those contentious ones were always the same. 50% of the playtesters loved it. 50% of the playtesters hated it. And, um, and so it was very easy quickly to define where the problem areas were. And allowed us to obviously, you know, focus in on those. Did, did you find anything that you um, you found was universally disliked that you ended up having to change, or was it you know that mixed reception you talk about about as bad as things got with individual bits? Yeah, but they, they were quite stark. You know, there was there was, you know, there was things like rolling high, rolling low. That was a division. Was there yeah. anything that we found that, like Scott said, that everybody hated and we took out? No, I don't. I don't, I don't think there was, there was, there was not. It would always be. You start to get a few where they say, "I'm not sure about this rule. I'm not sure about this," mm. and you get a few. Think, oh, maybe this is something, and then you'd read the other um, feedback following, um, or continue reading the feedback, and actually find actually the majority of people really like that, or this would be great if you did X with it, um, and. Um, and so there was never a, there was never a huge there was never a massive consensus that that particular thing was wrong. Um, it would just really point out what needed further either a bit of further development or tweaking, or was a bit overcomplicated and just needed simplifying. Or I think what you were just coming to was the rolling high, rolling low division as, as, a, as, a, as a kind of where where the playtest really kind of pointed out things that either became optional rules because it was quite clear that some people really wanted to use it in their games. And it was clear that other people didn't, so that's an, that's clearly an optional rule, like the spending luck. So the spending luck yeah. rule, but uh, rolling high, rolling low, it was kind of we had to kind of plump for one or the other. What what we're talking about there is um, should rolling low be a greater level of success? So if you're in a contested with roll with somebody, should it be rolling lower is better or rolling higher is better? So you've got a skill of seventy five. If you roll zero one, is that better or is it? You know, is it better that you roll 75 with, you know, that's the most you can roll in your skill, but you're still a success. So you're rolling more than somebody else who might have a skill of 36. They roll 36 and you roll 75, you've beaten them. I found it was counterintuitive to the ethos of Call of Cthulhu, which was all about rolling low and critical successes, zero ones are low. To suddenly turn that on its head. Yeah, I can see that in other systems and I can see the... The you know that it works having you know, as in unknown armies right yeah. uh, that rolling high rolling higher than your opponent is is better, um, but 
But it didn't. It just didn't seem to fit for me in Call of Duty. Well, if you try like, to roll low, well, keep it, trying to roll low. It gets a bit confusing sometimes in unknown armies, for example, because yes, rolling high and getting close to your skill is good. A double zero is still an absolute botch, and a zero one is still as good a result as you can get. So you know, it's it's not that yeah. clear cut. So yeah. I want to be able to hand the dice to the player and say, and they'd say, "What do I want to do?" And I say, "Roll as low as you can." Yeah, it, 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 as Paul said, it, it, it's. Everything in the game is about you know rolling lower. Uh, combat is all about rolling lower and, and and getting a better level of success. And so to put in that one rule that just was counter to that, well we well we knew from the feedback that you know half the people would just say well that would just be confusing, and um, and then half the people were like well that okay, would be all right. And so we we went with our gut and went with what made sense for the for the whole consistency of the rules. Another thing from the um, the feedback that was interesting, I mean, it was kind of predictable in some instances that people would not understand what we'd written. Mm. Um, but there was one instance of the um, bonus and penalty die uh, that we had written it as clearly as we could and most people got it. And uh, this is not to, you know, denigrate the person who didn't, but somebody totally misinterpreted it um, and kind of interpret it totally differently to how we'd written it. And we had to really go through and, and make sure that, um, well, hopefully we have, and, and, and use illustrations as well to really communicate that rule uh, with examples. Yes, uh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's what, you know, player feedback is great for, you know. Yeah. Because as I say, you know, you're asking us, oh, what, you know, what didn't work? So actually, generally, it was all going in the right direction. We'd, we'd, we'd spent, you know, three or four years cutting out the stuff that didn't work and, and honing it and getting the stuff to the, to the stuff that worked within the within the context of Call of Cthulhu. Um, so the rule set was pretty good at that point, but it needed further kind of honing and tweaking to make the language more understandable, that it's concise, that it was simple enough, um, and that, you know, the rules gen and, and rules were working. You know, well, this, confirmation. Is this is something, Mike, you, maybe because of your experience of working in role-playing production before, you were always sort of saying to me, you know, Paul, look, when you're writing this this section, you know, have the person in your head that's maybe sat at your gaming table that, that doesn't really grasp rules very quickly. Try and make it clear that it's written down in a way that that person is going to grasp it um, readily. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you want the rules to be as accessible as possible. Yeah, but it's you easy know, it's, to kind of overlook that. It's easy, it's easy to, to complicate things. And, make and, it too complicated. Yeah. yeah. Well, particularly as you're writing the rules, you know how they work. So you're coming in with a whole load of assumptions as to what is obvious. Yeah, and the written word it's, yeah, it's, um, can be tricky. Of course, there were some... There was a minority of individuals from the playtest who, who didn't like the rules at all. They felt the rules were fine, but they weren't radical enough. In fact, they wanted a they did want a completely new rule system yes. for mm. Call of Cthulhu, and were quite adamant about it. Um, that you know we had not gone far enough. You know we should have thrown all this BRP stuff away and done a new set of rules. And you know why why didn't we do that? Um, and of course, you know going back to our original kind of concepts and and the ethos behind it. it well, that wasn't what we were trying to do. Mm. So uh, unfortunately, those people were. We're always going to be disappointed, I'm afraid. I think maybe that was partly why we put some of the toolbox options in as well, because people were very 
some some people were very against the whole uh, thing of rolling for sta for characteristics, rolling dice for characteristics. You know, that's really old school uh, and really old fashioned. We don't want that. We want point by systems because it's more balanced and you know you get more input, more um, agency as a player to kind of design your character as you want it. And we kind of thought, well, you know, that's what people want. It doesn't really matter. That's um, yeah, you know, given, uh, absolutely. given that option. Absolutely. So the playtest round one was all of that. We went then back and, you know, really went through all the feedback, which took time, mm. uh, and then re basically redid the entire draft again, you know, taking into account some of the, you know, the comments and redefining some of the language and uh, and um, whatnot. And then that went out again to a second round um, of playtesters as well, you know, worldwide. Yeah, and you did something interesting with the, the second round, which is... <sighs> Going back to the, you know, what happened at, I think it was Continuum 2010. Was it 2010 or 20? No, it was 2012. I think where you gave that, that seminar where you talked about, you know, it was the, the announcement of Call of Cthulhu, uh, 7th edition, and it was recorded by Yogg-Sothoth and uh, put out on the internet. And you know, obviously immediately this led to a lot of feedback. And a lot of people making suppositions about the limited information you gave them in you know forty five minutes there. Um, yeah, one thing that I, I think made quite a big difference there was on the second round of playtesting. You know, you allowed people to post about their experiences online, and so yeah, you know, this made quite a big difference. I think with changing the discourse at that time from this, you know, the sky is falling, this is all broken, it's all changed, it's not Call of Cthulhu anymore. To you know, lots of people who'd actually played the game going on there and saying, well, actually, it's still Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, that's not really a question, is it? Um. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, no. I think yeah, I think um, it allowed people who played the game and read the rules um, to to say what they you know publicly what they thought about it. And as you say, um, a lot of people um, having read and played the rules were going, like, "No, actually, you you've picked up the wrong end of the stick here. Actually, it's not what you've heard or heard secondhand that it may be. Um, it is Call of Cthulhu. It plays like Call of Cthulhu." Yeah, there are a few changes here and there, but there's, it's not a different game. It's not a different rule set, um, and um, so that obviously helped to, you know, allay some fears that uh, you know we could, you know, perfectly understandable. It was interesting reading some of the uh, the the more negative feedback uh, in those early days of people talking about Call of Cthulhu. There was, you know, it was a bit of a to and fro um, debate about whether it needed updating or whether it needed changing and people saying, oh, it doesn't need changing because I do this and this, this house rule with it already and it works fine. Um, and it was kind of, you know, like, well, you're already altering it to make it different to what the book says. I don't think that many people, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that many people played it 100% by the book. And they probably won't from now on, but, well, I don't know, maybe they will. It touches on what we talked about uh, earlier in that um, people get used to playing their game with their house rules and kind of forget that they're playing with their house rules anymore. It's just the game to them. Yeah. And um, so it's you know it's sometimes you have to sort of take a back step and realise actually, oh, actually, yeah, that, that isn't in the rule book because you haven't gone back to the rule book in years. You haven't actually used, you don't use the rule book when you make Call of Cthulhu. You don't take it even with you. Um, and... Um, so when when the realization comes, actually, well, actually, you've been making up your own rules, which is fine, but that's what you've been doing. So the that's all is, we did. The, the, so there's a, <laughs> perhaps there is a need to kind of just 
refresh and you know relook at the rules and um, and make sure that they still you know are doing all they they should do. Then after the second round of playtest, that's when you formalised the final draft. Uh, yeah, I can remember some very late nights and long days yeah. working on final drafts. Yeah. Um, oh yes. Yeah, yeah. and because it, it was at that point, yeah. it was going. Uh, we were at Conception down on the south yeah. coast. The games convention oh, yeah, on the that, south coast. That's right. So we were sitting there playtesting the the chase rules and oh god, those yeah. At Conception. That was the very yeah. last bit, wasn't yeah. it? The chase rules. They went through so many iterations. You know, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, you weren't there at the time, Mike. And I can remember ringing you back and forth, and we were doing monsters and monster stats and and all that stuff. Um, and Scott, you were editing it. And probably, you know, a month or so after that, the, or a few weeks after that, the, the final draft went into chaos soon. Yeah, we put it in, I think, at the end of February. Yeah, uh, sounds about right, around about there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys call it a final draft, but nowadays Not really. I, I, would, I wouldn't consider <laughs> no. it a final draft. But uh, yeah, yeah. It's been tinkered with since. I mean, we oh, made and, there's, and there was still a lot of work of, that we did. Yeah. yeah. You know, thereafter, before we even hit layout. Yes, you know, just yeah. to you know keep because at the end of the day, as again as we talk, you know, the creative process never ends. You know, you you read it again and go, like, actually, I can reword that better. You know, and 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 you, or just you modifications know. in rules. I remember we we uh, we reworked uh, automatic weapon fire. Yeah, that was probably the last significant change. You oh, know, apart yeah. from. You know, bits and, that, and pieces. And that's when it was in layout, I think, that you made that change. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think, it, you know, we'd, we'd been playing with it long enough to, to kind of have a conversation go, like, actually, this automatic fight is it actually more complex than it needs to be. I think it was around that kind of kind of conversation, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, that and was it, one of those rules that was particularly tricky. It was kind of trying to balance a sense of reality with trying to keep it relatively simple but not so simple that it, you know it just became meaningless um hopefully we struck some kind of balance but um yeah i mean you know it's 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 automatic firewalls seem to be tricking a lot of game systems and you know i think you know where we've got to is a point that's it's fairly simple in terms of the the procedure to do it um and it, it's fairly straightforward and once you've done it a couple of times it's it, it it's fairly easy to do And then that takes us on to the Kickstarter. Yeah, we had quite a few chats with Charlie, didn't we, on the run up to the Kickstarter? Oh, we kind of we were having weekly conversations before, during, and after, really. Weren't yeah, we? yeah. Um, Google Hangouts with Charlie. Um, well, that, that, that does open up another question, which is, I mean, was you know, Chaosium's involvement with this pretty hands-on throughout the project, or did it ramp up? As... I mean, it grew. I mean, as, yeah. as you know, I would say even what I do now. It, you know, full time it occurs and with book development is that I'm pretty hands off at the start and let the writer get on with writing. Uh, and then when it comes into me, is I start to get gradually more and more involved till I'm full time working on the book. Um, and uh, and the company is in terms of then turning it to layout and art development and production. Um, and I don't think the world was any different, to be frank. It might have been a no, slightly I mean, longer process because it's a bigger book. But uh, I kind of got the impression, you know, they, they were fairly hands-off to begin with. You know, maybe these guys aren't going to develop it and turn anything in. So, you know, we, we, we'll just leave it for a while and see if they kind of, you know, actually do anything. And then, you know, once we started submitting um, uh, drafts and uh, so on, then, you know, they started, you know, participating a bit more. And, and you know, as it went towards the Kickstarter, then... 
uh, became very active. It became pretty much full full on, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and then you know, Kickstarter happened, and yeah, there's not a lot more to say about that. It, it, it happened, and um, it was, it was, incredibly it was you know, successful. very successful, and and there's some great. Um, Great supporters and fans and backers out there who, you know, obviously we continue to be thankful to for helping to, you know, turn it from black and white soft back into a full colour, all singing or dancing hard back. I think maybe. I think Mr. Sanderson probably contributed enough just to pay for that on his own. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Yeah, I did throw a lot on that. I think there's maybe a feeling I get, you know, from reading uh, posts on, on forums and so on that. You know, why is a big company like Chaosium running a Kickstarter to produce a product that they could do without all that stuff? Well, that's just not the case. I mean, they they could have produced, I think, a rule book, but it would have just been black and white, soft cover. Well, Chaosium's never done a full colour book. No. It's the first one. But all the other stuff that went into the Kickstarter, you know, and the, and the production of it and so on, would not have gone the same. I mean, am I right, no. Mike? Oh, without... absolutely. No, Chaosium's a very small... You know, very old role-playing company. Chatting with Charlie, <laughs> well, you know, know. and it it give us a rundown of what he'd been working on, and uh, you know, he'd been busy all day, but he wasn't working on Seventh Head. He was working on you know all sorts of book listings and and other shows and, and all manner of things. He's a very busy man. Uh, so I think it was the the money that they got from Kickstarter that you know allowed them to kind of devote produce... time to really to put a lot more yeah. time into the book than they would normally have uh, been able to have done. I think. Yeah. Um, and then we move on to the small matter of layout and artwork and so on, which yes, and yeah, that's yeah. and that's a, a whole job in itself. It's not just something you throw together and uh, it happens in a week. It's uh, you know art briefs have to be written, which you know they you know for a book, well, two books in fact, the player handbook and the uh, the, um, the the rule book. book. Um, uh, you know, art briefs have to be written for all of that and. Uh, and we're also talking, you know, colour art beefs as well, so you obviously have to take that into account. And obviously the whole layout process and design and, and working with uh, people like uh, Badger and, um, and Nick in the office at Chaosium um, and um, working through that whole process. And obviously it's, again, not just a case of here's a book going laid out, is here's a book, this is what it's meant to look like, this is how it's meant to work, this is, you know, and um, it's a, an ongoing back and forward process just like writing can be. So it uh, is a you know it's a time-consuming and lengthy process to get it right, um, and um, so uh, as I say, Badger did the initial layout work um, and spent some time uh, doing things like font development and uh, trying out different page layouts and styles, which I think he's written about on his blog, um, and um, and then eventually you know it got to a point where you know we pulled it uh, in house, so we could obviously you know, start to sort of fine tune and hone it further. And um, Nick Nicario, who's uh, you know full time layout guy at Chaosium, kind of took over the book work on the rule book. And Megan, uh, that was when it really seemed to get moving on. Really. Yeah, well, Megan also took over the player book, so yeah. we now had two people working on two books rather than one person working on two books. Yeah. Um, and um, but it uh, you know obviously started to really move forward at that point because um, uh, the guys could devote more time effectively to uh, to it and. Um, and so we, you know, rapidly got there, and obviously that then begins in our whole new process of you know checking and um, you proofing. know proofing, and, um, and that pretty much brings us up to the present day. Uh, and now here we are with it done. Yes, yeah, so the PDFs came out first, and uh, people were able to get them, and obviously they went to the backers, uh, and um, so people have been able to kind of begin reading and digesting and playing and using the rules. 
while we did the final, you know, the final step of you know really nailing the the the, the layout and any final corrections, and and obviously starting to begin work with the printer and uh, getting it actually made. And the fans were able to read through it and and post uh, any errors that they found. Yes, and obviously the the particularly the backers were were great in finding out you know little uh, errors here and there that had got missed by um, you, you, me, and about six other people. Um, so, um, well, yeah. all of us, Matt's got a scenario in Oh, Matt's, well, yeah, so. Matt, the Matt really is rough, so it's all your... Don't, you exclude, <laughs> don't exclude Matt from the <laughs> mistakes. Yeah. In fact, I'm quite happy just to blame Matt. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> hey, you were the one that edited the thing. <laughs> yeah, so anything that did go wrong is obviously Scott's fault now. We haven't really so, talked uh, about Matt's... I can't remember when we contacted you about writing a scenario for it. Would have been probably back end of 2011, I think. Yeah, I remember um, playtesting it at my place mm. with you and Scott and Robin and Lucy. Yeah. yeah that was a lot of fun. And, uh, I mean, were you surprised to get... To, well, to be asked, or...? I was honoured. I mean, it's Cthulhu's my biggest passion in gaming. So to... To get approached to say, would you like to write for the rule book? That was like fireworks going off, and how how could I refuse? You, you <laughs> yeah. did make me an offer I couldn't refuse, man. But it's not. That you, it wasn't like you were a new writer. I mean, you've written, you published uh, stuff for the companies before, and you'd, you'd written a lot of Cthulhu material. Although Chaosum haven't published it, but uh, you know, it was um, you know, you were somebody who could be relied upon to turn in a publishable work. Yeah, because um, by that point I'd been published with Pelgrain, um, Onyx Path with doing Vampire the Masquerade material and um, yeah, run count, well, countless, many Cthulhu games at conventions. And even even uh, scenarios that you just wrote for conventions were probably you know as well finished off as uh, most published scenarios. They were, they were laminated and edited and laid out. Yeah, so I, I tried to do all the graphic design and such for them, so they appeared to be a professional. Scott's professional shaking his head here at this like, alien my, concept. My, my, my bullet points look really fucking professional. <laughs> <laughs> on, on a post-it note. <laughs> Didn't you even print and bind some of your scenarios through Lulu, so they looked, you know, yes. so you could use them almost like a published book? Well, I, and partly, mainly, it was actually um, to help save space because I had them all in folders up until that point, and just all those folders stacked up on a shelf were taking up a good few foot of shelf space. <laughs> um, combine that with um, folder boxes that I had for all the handouts that have been uh, printed and laminated. I thought, shit, there's got to be a better way than this. And, and thought you can condense a few, um, a good few centimetres of printed out paper down to a very small, thin paperback if you get it printed on lower cards, uh, lower paper, um, paper density and get it professionally bound. And, yeah, suddenly my shelf space was free again, so I could put even more source books on. Little did you know that you were just making room for more budges. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> more birds. <laughs> I keep getting worried that poor Echo, the Indian ringneck, is going to shit all over my books. Another <laughs> <laughs> problem I usually have. <laughs> ringneck may take on a different meaning at that point. <laughs> yeah, why <are> you little... <laughs> Let's wrap up with just a couple of questions which you know, may provoke some interesting discussion. Now that Call of Cthulhu has been out, or 7th edition has been out for a little while, at least in PDF form, and you've, you've seen reactions uh, from people who've read it and played it, 
What do you make of, yeah, what, what is your perception of how it's been received? I guess that started with the play testing, um, that, that, that kind of feedback. And up until that point, I guess I didn't really know how it was going to be received. Um, and I was, and I was really pleased with the, the feedback that we got. Um, I mean, a lot of people seem to like it and be very positive about the changes. Not everybody. I mean, you know, you're never going to please everybody. Um, but it seemed to, you know, it seemed to be gen generally very positive, I would say. Is that oh, fair? yeah. No, I mean, I, th I think um, the play test were allowed us to sort of see that, um, you know, the, the majority of play testers, certainly, you know, the, the vast majority were you know, like the new rules, certainly like most of the new rules. Um, and, um, you know, that, that, you know, was good to, it was good to see that we, you know, we were on the right track. I think the feedback that I valued was when people said, I've been playing this and it feels just like yeah. playing old, old style Call of Cthulhu. That's, it doesn't that's what feel any different. Was the best thing to read. I'm going to use this version from now on. And can't say fairer than that. Really. Can't say fairer than that because that that was the goal. That was the goal to keep the game the same in terms of the feel and the play, the play, the play feel. But ultimately, as a whole, it was still Call of Cthulhu, and so getting that feedback was um, was very important, really, because I think if it, we hadn't got that kind of feedback, it would have, um, I think we'd have, you know, we'd have probably gone back to things a lot more and, and rethought them. And then the last question. Is there anything that you regret doing or not doing in this? Any missed opportunities? Or, or are you you're happy now, you know, the project's over with the way everything's turned out? I don't think there's anything in there that I want to change. I think, you know, like we said, I like tinkering with the rules and so on. Um, I mean, maybe as time goes by, things might occur to me, but I haven't had that urge for a long time. And after, after the, you know, after the draft you know the final draft was submitted i'd still it'd still be kind of rolling over my in my mind and i'd still occasionally sort of ring mike up and say oh you know actually i think this should be a little bit different and, and you know make a little tweak here and there little minor things um but no i feel it's finished it's done and i'm happy with it if there's one thing that i set out to do that didn't and i didn't achieve initially i was hoping to make it a smaller book um, but ultimately, there's nothing that I would want to cut out. So, you know, it's a bigger book than I envisaged. I don't mind. Yeah, and I, I think I'm pretty much in agreement with Paul on everything he said there, really. I, you know, I'm very happy with the end result. I think it looks a great book. Um, the, it plays really well. The, my the, my favourite game still feels like my favourite game. And um, the feedback we've had has been tremendous. And, um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's been good. I would just hope that people play it and enjoy playing it. Uh, for a good while, yeah, until absolutely. the next edition. <laughs> That'll be a, a while up, I would have thought. Um, <laughs> I, I thought you were starting the Kickstarter next week. No, no, oh, no, 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 no. But, uh, no, I mean, as Paul says, ultimately it's about, it's about, it's a game. And so, you know, the best thing is if, People can pick that up and play the game, discover the game, uh, discover Lovecraft, and um, what more can I ask? Really, you know that that's that's that that would be just fine. 
I'd say it's been a labour of love, really. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I you know, I, I often look back and think, well, would I, if I know now what I knew then, would you? Done would it? I have done it? And the answer is yes. Well, there's nothing left at this stage but to say thank you to Mike Mason for joining us and for, you know, and, and to Paul as well for helping to fill us in on on this little bit of gaming history. Oh, not a problem. It's been uh, it's been fun, guys. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking it over with Mike. Because um, whilst we've worked on it all these years, we haven't really no, there's not really over in been any detail. reason to sort of sit and go reminisce about it, has there? So no. uh, yeah, and you said a few things that maybe I didn't hadn't really thought about. So uh, yeah, it's been good. Well, chaps, that seems like that's the end. So it is. It's been a mega show. Well, it's time to say goodbye. Is it? It is. I think it is. Mm-hmm. So it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. Farewell from me. And toodlepip from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com We're getting plenty of tongue action on Thursday with you. Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> what?